Well, several years ago, <laughs> a very interesting article in Time magazine called Fighting Phobias. And it talked about how America has made huge progress in giving new hope to battle our fears. And what was interesting about the article were the sidebar columns all throughout the article that had on the top the, the title, Fear Not! Exclamation point. And then these diagnosed phobias that people wrestle with. So uh, I wanted to share a couple of them with you. They're quite interesting. The first one, uh, electrophobia, of course, is the fear of chickens. And then there's this one that people struggle with, arachibotyrophobia, which means uh, fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. There is this one that's appropriate for our time together, homilophobia, <coughs> excuse me, which is the fear of sermons. <laughs> and then there's this one, uh, ophidiophobia, which is the fear of snakes. And then the article goes on to talk about how in the ancient paths, people needed these fears so that they could survive. But now in modern day America, and we've made such progress on all things, that these fears are actually now treatable and can be pushed aside by therapies and medications. Even these ones, satanophobia, which is the fear of Satan, and peccatao, I can't even say it, the fear of sin, and hatophobia, the fear of hell, and zeusophobia, the fear of God and starophobia, the fear of hanging on a cross. And then this last one, thanatophobia, which is the fear of death. Even these can be treated by uh, the great American culture. Oh, and another interesting one that uh, is appropriate for today, emetophobia, which of course is the fear of vomiting. And that takes us to our text this morning. If you would follow along as we read the letter to Laodicea, the seventh church, the end of the first round of messages on Revelation, this is the infamous vomit passage in the New Testament. Please follow as I read. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to literally vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, 
let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Ouch. Poor Laodicea. In all the other seven churches, all the other six, Jesus has a word of affirmation. Not Laodicea. It is harsh. It is nauseating. Ouch. Poor? Poor in one of the leading banking centers of the ancient world? Blind in one of the leading medical centers of the ancient world where they manufactured a world-famous ISAV? Naked in one of the leading textile industries where they produced black woolen garments growing a unique kind of black sheep around the city? Poor, blind, naked, Laodicea? I mean, Laodicea was so well off and accomplished that in 60 AD, when a massive earthquake hit their city, they did not need to ask Rome for FEMA funds. They rebuilt by themselves. In fact, the only thing to complain about in Laodicea was the water. They had no water source in the city, so they had to pipe it in, and they piped hot water in from uh, Hierapolis, six miles away. And by the way, someone after the service last night told me there's actually a town in Wyoming called Hierapolis where they have hot springs. Who knew? Uh, anyhow, they piped in the hot water from Hierapolis, six miles away, and they also piped in eight miles away cold water from Colossae. But by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. They thought they were well off and accomplished, but their water was lukewarm. The church in Laodicea thought they were well off and accomplished. They, I'm sure, had their ministry program franchised, funded, homogenized. They had everything the way they thought it should be. But Jesus comes in, looks at the ministry of Laodicea and says, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Somebody has a vision problem here. I can't shake that one fear though. Thanatophobia, the fear of death. Pretty much everyone in this room is going to die. Maybe the thanatobes among us are the most sane. Maybe America has a vision problem when it comes to thanatophobia. Because it seems the best answer America can give for this fear, especially when we experience economic collapse or terrorist attack, is... Go shopping. I mean, we even dress up our dead people to look alive and nice. Reminds me, I have a good pastor friend who once was doing a graveside service, had on the robe, beautiful liturgy prepared, dead person in the casket, just got distracted for a moment, little too close to the grave, the ground gave way and he fell into the grave. (laughs) (laughs) 
couldn't get out of the grave because he had the robe on. <laughs> Literally had to be hand down, lifted out of the grave. Everyone at that graveside service was wide awake. I suggested he make it part of the liturgy moving forward. It is a great visual. Laodicea is sick. And so, doctor, doctor, give me the news. Jesus, what's wrong with this church? And Jesus is going to give us the symptom, the diagnosis, and the medicine. Are you ready? Symptom. In a word, lukewarm. Now, there's some discussion about what that word means. I think it's fairly clear what it means from the background in Laodicea. There are those who think hot, you know, he, he's, I wish you were hot means, you know, I wish you were really on fire for Jesus. Cold means, you know, you're far from Jesus and he's, you know, you're not very excited about Jesus. And then there's this wishy-washy middle that we call lukewarm. I don't think that's it. I think what's it is he's talking about being useful and being useless. He wants us to be hot from Hierapolis because hot water you can be cleansed and healed with. Or he wants us to be cold water. We need cold water to survive. He wants us to be useful. But lukewarm is what? Useless. So at any given point, at any given time, a Christian is either useful or useless to Jesus. Useless is the idea of having low effect, low impact. Low effect is lukewarm. Well, what drains effect? What makes us useless? Well, I think later in the text, he goes and gives us a word that is actually the opposite word of lukewarm. It's in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. The opposite of lukewarm is this idea of being earnest. What's that mean? It's where we get our English word zealous, or in a negative context, jealous. What does it mean to be jealous? It means to set your love on something intensely. And if our love is set on our own ego and our own wants, then when other people get things we want, we're jealous of them and we resent them. But if our love, highest love, deepest love is set on Jesus, then we are zealous for other people and jealous that they do good and get blessed. uh, There's a passion there for uh, being earnest for the good of other people. That's the opposite of lukewarm. Lukewarm, useless. Uh, zealous means passionate for the good of others because your affections are set on Jesus Christ. Well, how do we get to that place of low affect? Low effect comes from low affect, low emotion, low energy that explodes in service for other people. Well, I think it primarily comes from losing sight and, and this is the connection. This is hard, folks, because of who we are and where we live. We've hit the historical jackpot being born, when we're born and where we're born. But the text makes a direct link between being lukewarm. Listen, link between being lukewarm and being wealthy and rich and well-off. They are connected. Why? Well, here's my theory. Go with me a little bit. I think when we are accomplished and well-off, we might say with our mind and our words, I am a sinner, but it doesn't really grip our heart. And the love of Jesus Christ for us isn't miraculous 
to us anymore. Wealth gets in the way of seeing how miraculous that love is. And the idea that our main identity when we choose to follow Jesus becomes child of God, it doesn't electrify us that we are a child of God. I mean, if it weren't for the Father, we wouldn't even exist. And we had nothing until we had him. And now that we have him, we have everything. But because all of our wealth and comfort gets in the way, it doesn't make us earnest. Okay, yeah, I'm a child of God. Every Christian's life verse is 1 John 3, 1. Behold! What manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Behold literally means news from another country. I guess what we're asking Laodicea and Waterstone is this. Is the fact that you're a child of God still news to you? Does it electrify you? Is there an explosion of service to other people? Because you are a child of God. That's the difference between lukewarm, useless, and zealous, passionate for God, exploding in service to others. Have you ever uh, been challenged on being lukewarm? I highly recommend the experience, though it's the worst day of your life. Do you know how to do it? Go on a short-term mission trip to a third world country and live with the church there for a week or longer. It will be one of the most discouraging things you ever do, but every American Christian and child, teenager especially, should do it. Let me tell you about my worst day when I was confronted with the idea of American culture and its relationship to being lukewarm. I was in Mali, West Africa, Several years ago, I was sitting with a group of pastors. Our missionary there, Doug Wilson, had set up this meeting, and I spent a whole day with about 15 pastors. It was an awesome day. We talked, you know, leading in a church. We talked preaching and pastoral care. It was amazing until the last hour. The last hour, Doug opened it up, and they were allowed to ask me personal questions. And one of the young pastors stood up, and he said, how much is your church budget? So I shared with him what our church budget was at the time. Doug did some quick currency math, shared in the Malian currency what it was, and they decided, I couldn't understand any of this sidebar discussion going on, but it would turn out to be a full percentage point of the entire federal budget for the country of Mali. Then another pastor stood up and asked how much I made. Doug intervened and said, well, in America, we don't talk about that sort of thing. <laughs> but I said, no, it's okay. I'll share that. And I actually added Jan's income. She's a full-time interpreter and my income. And at that time, this was several years ago, at that time it was around $60,000. And when I said that and Doug translated it into the currency, three pastors got up and left the circle and left. They couldn't hear another word that I would say to them. There was a very awkward silence. And then one of the older pastors stood up and he said, and I'll never forget this, this is why we pray for our American brother pastors. 
because they suffer from the poverty of wealth. In their country and in their culture, they do not have to pray with desperation because they have everything they need. And in their country, they give so much to us and you know, we built their seminary, we built their church building, but they still spend so much of their money on themselves. And then he said, because of the freedoms that our American brother pastors have, they are able to witness, but they don't. While we are being shunned from our families, thrown into jail, and some of us killed. You need to go and knock on Jennifer Smith's door and go on a short-term mission trip so that you can be discouraged too. It will be the greatest adventure into lukewarmness challenge that you'll ever have. The symptom is lukewarm. Laodicea is lukewarm. What's the diagnosis? How did they get that way? Well, as we said, it's a vision problem. Look at verse 17. You say, church, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. (laughs) They thought they were really doing well. Jesus says, you do not realize you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, poor, powerless, to change your condition, blind. You don't even see it. Naked, everyone else does. There is a vision problem between Jesus and Laodicea such that Jesus is nauseated by this church. He is sick. He is about to vomit, emetophobia. Where does this vision problem come from? Well, Jesus was pretty clear about this. And you know, we say this around here at Waterstone, Jesus talked a lot about money. He did, why? Because money is perhaps, arguably, the number one discipleship tool for you to grow as a believer. It's definitely the number one barometer of where you are. Where your treasure is, there you'll find your heart. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 6 in terms of greed. He said that money has this power that produces greed in our lives. And it's greed that's the sickness. It's the diagnosis, greed. Now, he said, as a great metaphor, he said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eyes are good, your body is full of light. If your eyes are bad, your body's full of darkness. What does that mean? It means like if in this room you're sitting here, all of a sudden the lights went off. Be pitch dark, but somebody found a flashlight and shined it. If your eyes are good, the light comes in and you're able to find the aisles and get out without bruising your shins on the chair. But if that happened and your eyes are bad, even though there's light in the room, you can't see it and you are gonna get some sore shins and your body's gonna hurt. In the same way, Jesus says, money, the love of money, has that power of greed over us. Greed causes blindness in two ways. First, money, the power of money, blinds us to our own greed. Now, I don't know about you, but me, when I think of someone who's greedy, I think of my uncle with an in-ground swimming pool. I don't think of myself as being greedy. We always compare up for the measure. Which is why whenever Jesus was talking about money and greed, he would always introduce the topic by saying this. 
watch out, you might be greedy. Now, he never had to say that about any other sin. It's never recorded in the New Testament that Jesus said, watch out, you might be committing adultery. Why? Well, because you don't wake up in bed with another person and say, oh, you're not my wife. We know when we're committing adultery, but when it comes to greed, watch out. Be on your guard. You might be greedy. Greed blinds us. Money blinds us to our own greed. The second way that money has the power to blind us is not only to our greed, but it blinds us to our true condition as a person that has eternal life. It blinds us to our immortality. Everything about money and spending now wants to make this life, I have everything I need, uh, I'm comfortable. All our money is spent in this life. When, when we, we're blinded to the fact that we are gonna spend a lot longer time in the next life than we are in this life. So why do we invest so heavily in this life when we should be investing more in the next life? Money has the power to blind us from our immortality. I joke with Jan, my wife, but I say I, I, I'm really leaning towards my epitaph being when I want you to stand next to my dead body, I want you to read in my tombstone a Woody Allen quote. If man is immortal, you have definitely overpaid for your carpet. I was profoundly moved a few years ago by a book called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. And one of the principles he has in that book is what he calls the 15-minute 15, 15 test. It's either the five-minute or the 15-minute test. I think it's five. The five-minute test. And what he means by that is that five minutes after we're in heaven, we'll have these twinges of why didn't we invest more and spend more of our money on the eternal life? Why did we spend so much on this life? And we'll have regrets why didn't we give more to that or to that? And the point is, why don't we start closing that gap now between what we're actually giving and what we will wish one day we would have? The future is now. Laodicea is sick. They are lukewarm. And the symptom is they've been caught up in greed. This text connects being wealthy with being lukewarm. The symptom is an eye problem, a greed problem. Well, what's the medicine? Two things, two treatments. The first medicine is a grace treatment. The second medicine is a resurrection treatment. The grace treatment he talks about in verse 18. So here's what he says. I counsel you, doctor, doctor, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Gold refined in the fire. All of these are what children of God get. These are the treasures. These are, are, are the access we have to God. We are creatures of grace, children of grace. And so what do we get? We get gold refined in fire. Gold is this precious metal, these precious promises that no matter how bad it gets in this life, no matter if the worst happens to us, it's an upgrade. We get heaven. We have eternal riches, now invisible, but then not. We have gold as God's children refined in fire. And how did we get that gold? We get that gold because Jesus left his wealth and his riches and for our sakes became poor. 
And we have white clothes to wear. White clothes means purity. It means that when Jesus died on the cross, he gave us forgiveness of sins. And it means that he lived this perfectly obedient life and he gives that to us so that we're clothed in righteousness. We get white clothes so we can cover our sin and shameful nakedness. And then thirdly, we get salved so that we can see it all. We can see reality, what's really happening in the world, the flow of history. We can see what we really need to see, which is the invisible riches of Christ we have now. We have all of these as a child of God and that should turn low effect into high effect because that really affects us. Isn't the brilliant irony, by the way, of Jesus amazing here? Gold, I'll give it to you in the most powerful banking center in the ancient world. White clothes, where they produce black wool clothing. And I salve from the medical centers of Laodicea. Jesus is going right at it and say, well, you can choose the wealth of this world or you can, and wisdom of this world or you can choose me. I'll give you this. That should stir grace in us. We are creatures and products of his grace. But it also goes from access to intimacy. In this infamous verse in chapter 20, you often hear it from, uh, verse 20, from evangelists, but it's not really about evangelisms, about receiving Jesus. It's Jesus wanting back into a church. He says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If any hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. In the ancient world, sharing a meal was sharing a life. It was one of the most intimate gestures you could offer to another individual or family was to sit at the same table and share food together. Jesus wants to do that with Laodicea, even though he's got a sick belly. He still will not give up on this church, Laodicea or Waterstone. He will never give up on us. No matter what we've done, no matter where we are, whether we even would say that right now we're pretty useless, he's knocking at your door and he wants to sit down and share life with you. Will you let him in? Will you let him in? He will never give up on you. So we have this grace treatment and then lastly we have this resurrection treatment. It goes back to John's strategy. With every church, he's taken a piece of chapter one vision of Jesus, who he is, and applies it specifically to the needs of each individual church in their context. And in this one, verse 14 says, Laodicea, here's how you need to see me. I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the ruler over all creation. All of those point to Jesus' power over thanatophobia. It points to his resurrection, because Jesus rose from the dead, he's the ruler of all creation. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he is the faithful and true witness to the promises of the Father that said he would do it. And because Jesus rose from the dead, he is the amen. The last word in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read, because Jesus rose from the dead, all of the promises of God are yes, amen. That is resurrection power that can move a life from being lukewarm to being earnest. When we realize that kind of power is ours, resurrection power, nothing here is the last word. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Life conquers death. We have forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. And in the end, it's like this. We'll be thrown our body down into the grave. The, the good news is what Jesus gives us, the bad news, and we don't like to think about it, but we're all dying sorry. We're dying. 
Your body will be thrown down into a grave and your zeusophobia and your hateophobia and your peccatatophobia and, and, and your snake phobia, maybe that's more than just an ancient thing in the past. And your, and your, all your fears and your thanatobia will be thrown down into that grave. But do you know what? <laughs> Here's the truth. You won't be dead. Jesus will have put his robes of righteousness on you. And then he will reach down and pull you out of that grave. And you will never be more sane in your life. And Jesus will say, let's get out of here. It's time to eat. And you will recognize that voice. So before we sing this from our feet, I'd like to give you 30 seconds to a minute to think about this. What you've heard, this word to Laodicea. Three words, lukewarm. How are you with that? Lukewarm. Greed, the sickness. How are you with that? And then lastly, do you need to stir your heart with grace and resurrection? Those are the true, most profound things about you. You are a product of grace and you are promised resurrection. Think about that. And then we'll sing it.